Well, my name is Pastor Dave, and uh, my name is Pastor Dave. My name's not Pastor Dave. <laughs> what a terrible name that would be <laughs> to give your child. Oh, my name is Dave, and I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, forgive me if I'm a little bit, you know, I'm struggling with a bit of a cold, but it's great to be together this morning. Yeah. As we move further into this winter season and the days get colder and, the, and they get shorter, many of us may not only experience uh, the darkness and coldness outside, but for many of us, we might feel this ever-increasing darkness on the inside. There's this type of depression or anxiety called seasonal affective disorder, or SAD, that substantially affects many people. And one of the factors that can cause SAD is, re is reduced levels of exposure to sunlight that we normally have on a daily basis. And so this can result in a vitamin D deficiency, which affects our serotonin and melatonin levels in our brain, which can then result in symptoms such as sleep, irregularities, weight gain, changes in appetite, feeling exhausted, having difficulty concentrating. Some of you might be like, I'm there right now. <laughs> now, for some people, they can just, you know, board a plane, escape down south to someplace tropical, right, during this time of year. But for most of us, that's not an option. So what are we to do? We can wait it out, hope that spring arrives early and with it comes a change in our condition. Perhaps we need to talk to our family doctor about this. But there is another popular remedy uh, that's being offered to those who are struggling with seasonal affective disorder and that is light therapy. With light therapy, a person uses a special lamp which mimics the natural light and it shifts the brain chemicals uh, levels which can influence mood and even sleep patterns. And one of these special lamps that combats seasonal affective disorder is called the happy light. And the happy light's motto is, life is better in the light. Life is better in the light. But you know, just as living in these cold winter days can affect our mental health, the Bible says humankind is living in another kind of darkness, a deeper, more pervading darkness that not only affects our hearts and mind, but every fiber of our existence, our souls, our relationships, even this physical world that we're living in. And this darkness cannot be overcome by, you know, an excursion to the tropics or even by a special lamp or any other human-made device or plans that we think can rescue us from the grip of this universal darkness that it has on us. However, the scriptures do say that there is a solution and that indeed life is better in the light. But to experience this better life, you need more than a happy light. You need to rejoice in the light of God. And we are looking at Isaiah chapter 9 this morning. And if you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to turn there. It begins in verse 1. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. 
In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people in darkness, walking in darkness, have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them and the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And of the greatness of his kingdom and peace, there will be no end. And he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. And the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. This is the word of the Lord. Hmm. Well, the beginning of our passage this morning starts with this word, nevertheless. This is a transition word. It means, you know, however, or in spite of all that. And it shows us that this passage is connected to whatever was said before. So if ours starts with, nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress, then that means the previous passage is speaking about people who are experiencing gloom because they are in distress. And in Isaiah 8, it says, distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land, when they are famished, they will be enraged, and looking upward, they will curse their king and their God. And they will look towards the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into utter darkness. Now, the people that Isaiah is speaking to in chapter 8, who are experiencing this terrible condition, are the Israelites, specifically the people of Judah. This was after the nation of Israel split into two sovereign states, the, the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah. And the reason that Isaiah is foretelling this time of terrible suffering for the people of Judah is that their king, Ahaz, he made an alliance with the king of Assyria because Ahaz feared being attacked by two other nations, the, the kingdom of Aram and the kingdom of Israel. In 2 Kings 16, it says, Ahaz sent messengers to Tilgath-Pelazar, the king of Assyria. And he said, I am your servant and vassal. Come up and save me out of the hand of the king of Aram and the king of Israel, who are attacking me. And Ahaz took silver and gold found in the temple of the Lord and in the treasuries of the royal palace, and he sent it as a gift to the king of Assyria. Now, some of us might think, well, what's so wrong with that? It seems like it's a prudent thing to do that when your back is up against the wall, you use whatever resources you have at your disposal, you know, whether it be your power, your influence, your money, whatever, and you use it to get out of a jam. But before this, 
God had sent the prophet Isaiah to King Ahaz in order to warn him not to make an alliance with Assyria. Instead, Judah was to trust God. They were to wait on him to rescue them. God says to Ahaz in Isaiah 7, be careful, keep calm, don't be afraid, do not lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood, meaning Aram and Israel. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. And the Lord continues in chapters 7 and 8 to warn Ahaz that it's not Aram and Israel that will bring him trouble, but it's Assyria, the very nation that he's allying with, the thing he's counting on to rescue him and be Judah's salvation, rather than depending on the Lord. God warns Ahaz about the destruction that Assyria will bring on Judah, not only leading them astray to pagan worship, but eventually tearing down the kingdom. But Ahaz, he doesn't ask God for a sign, even though the Lord invites him to. And he did not stand firm in his faith. When his back was against the wall, Ahaz put his trust in his connections and in his wealth. And though it may have spelled immediate relief from the attack of Aram and Israel, it would eventually plunge Judah into utter despair and darkness, forcing them to become this vassal state to Assyria, paying them regular tribute. And then in 701 BC, the Assyrian king at that time, Sennacherib, he sacked the Judean towns, he besieged Jerusalem, and he took vast riches from Ahaz's son, King Hezekiah. Now, Ahaz's problem wasn't his desire for security and peace for himself or the nation. Those are good things. But rather, his problem was what he looked to in order to obtain that safety and security. Israel's people were told long before this that they were not to acquire great military might. They weren't supposed to have lots of war horses and chariots and soldiers. Unlike the other nations, they were to look to God and trust in him for their peace and security. And in doing so, God said that he would bring them the good life that they desired. Now, instead, the people find themselves experiencing gloom, living in distress because they put their hope in earthly things. Nevertheless, I don't think words have ever sounded so sweet. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom. And it will start in Zebulun and Naphtali in this region of Galilee. Why? Why will it start there? Well, these are the two regions that first bore the brunt of Assyria's cruel invasion and destruction and were eventually taken over by Assyria. And you may also notice that if you look in your Bibles and you'll see that beginning in verse 2, all of a sudden the formatting kind of shifts in the text, it goes from like just regular kind of sentences to all of a sudden it's, it's a little bit written differently. And this is because this good news that Isaiah proclaims is a poetic ode. Has it ever happened to you before 
where you've experienced something so good it comes along, you can't just help but bust a rhyme, right? <laughs> you can't help but just start singing. I know you have. Yeah. But see, the people of Zebulun and Naphtali, they've experienced such terrible times. They're described as walking in darkness, and darkness is symbolic for their oppression. But that will be no more, Isaiah sings, for they will see a light, and such a great light will dawn on them. And if darkness is symbolic for their oppression, well, then light is a symbol of their liberation. These oppressed people will be liberated and set free. And this is such a complete liberation that they will be overcome with joy. Joy, like when they bring in an awesome harvest, verse 3 says. Now, I'm a city boy. I did not grow up in farm country, but I do know people who did. And I could just imagine the joy that one would experience when it comes to harvest time and, you know, you've spread your seeds or you've planted whatever and you come back and find that the harvest is threefold, fourfold, fivefold. And you're just like, man, we have to hold a harvest party. Right? This is so good. It's better than they've expected. And so there is eating and drinking and dancing because they're good Baptists, right? celebrating God's good gift with great pleasure and delight. Or joy, like when warriors plunder the enemy of all of their riches after they've won the battle. But get this, this joyful celebration of these soldiers in this song, it's not taking place because they have won the fight themselves. No, these plundering warriors are rejoicing because they get the spoils of war after somebody else has defeated the enemy. This is made clear by the reference in verse 4 referring to Midian's defeat. See, Midian's defeat was carried out in the book of Judges. There was this man that God called named Gideon who he was to lead an assault on the Midianites because they had been oppressing Israel. So Gideon heads out uh, with an army of 32,000 soldiers, but God stops him and says, that's too many in Judges 7. He says, you have too many warriors with you. If I let all of you fight the Midianites, the Israelites will boast to me that they saved themselves by their own strength. God doesn't want Israel thinking they can save themselves by their own strength. And so God has Gideon pare down the army from 32,000 down to just 300 soldiers. And then he has them arm themselves, not with shields and swords, but rather with horns and jars with torches in them. Think like tea lights. And then the defeat of the Midianites is described like this in Judges 7. It was just after midnight, after the changing of the guard, when Gideon and the men with him reached the edge of the Midianite camp. And suddenly, they blew the ram's horn and broke their clay jars. And they held the blazing torches in their left hand and the horns in their right hand. And they all shouted, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And then each man stood at his position around the camp And they watched as all the Midianites 
rushed around in a panic, shouting as they ran to escape. And when the 300 Israelites blew their ram's horn, the Lord caused the warriors in the camp to fight against each other with their swords. And those who were not killed, they fled to places as far away as Beth Shittah near Zererah and to the border of Abel Maloha near Tabath. And so they didn't win the battle, but the Lord did. And so these warriors in Isaiah chapter 9, they are rejoicing because not only do they get to enjoy the spoils of God's victory, but Isaiah goes on to say they will no longer ever have to fight again. It says in verse 4 that the yoke and the rod of their oppressor has been shattered for good. And that they can burn, that their victory is so complete that these soldiers can not only retire their uniforms, but they can actually burn them up for they will never need to fight a battle again because God will do the fighting for them. Talk about something worth celebrating. But the most curious thing of all is how God will bring about this decisive victory. What this light that overcomes the darkness will look like. In verse 6, for to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government will be on this child's shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. And he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it, upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. And the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. You see, God's decisive victory over the power of darkness is a child. Talk about strange but this is no ordinary child. The titles given to this child tell us that he is unique. The names given to this baby boy go well beyond the titles of princes who are born in palaces. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. These names show us that this child is remarkable and he is unequaled. Israel has had Kings before whose comings has been, have been hailed as a, a new era, right? Ushering in a, a, a new peaceful time. But, you know, they never lived up to their billing. And they have experienced the rise and fall of all these great kingdoms all around them. But none of those kingdoms ever endured. But this child's government and peace, Isaiah says, it promises, and the peace it promises to bring will have no end. The child's reign is earmarked by justice and righteousness that will last forever. Of course, the writers of the New Testament, they see that this prophecy is fulfilled in the Christ child born at Bethlehem. It's Jesus. It's Jesus whom the angels said to the shepherd is good news that will cause great joy for all people he is the Savior born to us. He is the, the Messiah, the Rescuer. 
It's Jesus whom the angel Gabriel tells Mary will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever, and his kingdom will never end. It's Jesus whom John calls the light of all mankind. He is the light that shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it, and it never will. And in Matthew chapter 4, right before he delivers his Sermon on the Mount, Matthew describes Jesus walking through the land of Galilee, fulfilling this prophecy. The lands of Zebulun and Naphtali, a light has dawned. The people in darkness will have seen a great light. Jesus is the light of God, and we are invited to rejoice in him. You see, the problem for the people Isaiah is prophesying to at this time is that they lived like seven to eight hundred years before Jesus' arrival. And so God's timing doesn't necessarily match up with their timeline, does it? And that's often the case for us too, isn't it? Like, that's why we can often find ourselves acting like King Ahaz as well hedging our bets. You know, something difficult is going on in our lives and and we pray about it and and we feel as if God doesn't seem to be acting and so we take control of the situation. We hedge our bets and then we ask God to bless them. But you see, the problem with that is not only does that show a lack of faith or trust in God, but though it may work out for us in the present, it can ultimately cause trouble for our future. For Ahaz, It ended up being his son, Hezekiah, who paid the price to the Assyrians for his father's unwillingness to trust in the Lord. Now, I couldn't imagine uh, how hard it would be if my parents or grandparents accumulated a debt and they ended up leaving my siblings and I to pay off that debt. That would be really difficult. Instead, I'm so grateful because they have trusted God to be content with the material goods that they have. And because of their faithfulness in this, they have passed on to their children and grandchildren a legacy that will set us up well for our futures. More importantly than that, than any financial inheritance that may be left, is a spiritual one, right? Foregoing the temptation to be pulled in other directions, these foremothers and four fathers of mine, they displayed a long obedience in the same direction, trusting Jesus when the going got tough. Now that never guarantees the next generation's faith, but it certainly sets them up well for it. If you and I trust solely in our plans for today's security or for today's happiness or whatever it is, rather than trusting God, we may be potentially be mortgaging not only our future, but the next generations as well. Perhaps you're here this morning and you feel like you're walking through some darkness yourself. Like the people of Israel, you look at your situation in your life and all you see is distress. You feel fear. It could be your financial situation. Or perhaps a relationship. Maybe it's a health problem or a career frustration. 
Whatever the scenario is, each one of us is tempted to take our situation into our, whole ha- into our own hands, to control it or manipulate it however we can in order to feel safe or to escape the darkness. We can be tempted to put our hope in our power or our money or our influence rather than trusting God's provision and timing. One way I see some people tempted to do this is by placing their hopes in political powers, similar to the way that King Ahaz did. Even many Christians today are given into fear and anger about things going on in our lives or in our society, and the thing they hope will bring, the change that they long for, their salvation, is a government. You know, if only this certain politician were no longer in charge, they rant on Facebook. Or if only this political party was in power, as if everything would be made right by having the correct people in government. Now, we are definitely told to pray for our government, that they would be, God would give them wisdom and that they would act on it. But, but depending on the government to usher in God's kingdom, this kind of thinking hasn't only served to polarize us one from another. It's not even biblical. Trusting governments and political powers to usher in Christian values or God's kingdom has never served God's people well, and it certainly didn't help King Ahaz. Only the Christ child's shoulders are big enough to bear the weight of his kingdom. Only Jesus will be able to establish true peace, justice, and righteousness on the earth when he returns and his government is established once and for all. But I get it, though. I can also feel the temptation to put misplaced hope in other things as well. You know, as we come into this Christmas time, I don't know about you, but I receive a lot of flyers and catalogs to my door. Lots of them look very interesting to me, displaying different things that, you know, promise to make my life better. And I, I open them up and I look at them and I say, oh, I see many things that I want, not need. But I look at them and I think, if only I had that, just make my life that much better. Or if I get this, then my desire for more will be satiated, right? I won't want anything else if I can just get that, right? I'll finally be content. But putting hope for contentment or joy in getting more is simply foolishness. Paul writes in Philippians 4, I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Tell us the secret, Paul. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. He is the secret to being content. It is Jesus who gives us the strength. Jesus is The secret to real happiness, true joy, comes through trusting Christ. If God's plan for victory over darkness and trouble is this child, then I guess a question that I need to ask myself, and maybe you do too, is why do so many of my plans not involve this child, but so much of my own human effort? 
to escape the darkness and experience authentic joy, peace, and hope, we need to rejoice in Jesus, the light of God. It's Jesus who delivers us from darkness because his words are a light unto a path. They show us how we are to live as authentic human beings. His is the way of true flourishing. Jesus leads us out of the shadow of death because his death on the cross rescues us from the clutches of sin and evil. And so just like those soldiers in Isaiah 9 who rejoice in the spoils of a victory won by God in which they did not have to fight, you and I can also rejoice in a victory that's ours through a battle that he waged and won on our behalf. When my, uh, my dad and uncle were just boys, in Germany, uh, my dad was probably about six and my uncle eight or nine, and they were bouncing around from different refugee camp to different refugee camp between the, the parts of Germany that were occupied by the Americans or the Russians. They often went days without food. And my dad told me the story one time, but one time they came upon, as my uncle and him were hiking around, an abandoned military truck that had been tipped over. Maybe it was like blasted over or something like that, but there was no one around. And they went inside and they looked and it was full of bread. Yeah. And so they were like those soldiers who joyfully enjoyed the spoils of a victory that they didn't have to fight. But as they were going through the back of this truck, not only did it have bread and just some basic rations, my dad was telling me about how they also had these brown paper packages with something inside they had never seen or experienced before. It was bubblegum. Can you imagine the delight of two refugee boys who were starving for food, not only to get bread to fill their tummies, but to experience bubblegum for the very first time? What an amazing bonus. What joy. And this is the way it is for us when we trust in Jesus. Not only do we gain our ransom through Christ's triumph on the cross over the enemy, but we also share in the spoils of his victory by the resurrection. The bonus of eternal life with Jesus. Now that is something worth rejoicing about. I remember having recently a couple of back-to-back -back encounters with people who wanted to, to talk with me and to pray with me, both who expressed that they were going through some really difficult times, feeling like they were at their limits, walking through some difficult things. The first person I met with, they said, I've done and I'm doing all that I can to move forward, to get better, but what I realize is that it's going to take something outside of me something beyond me to really change what I'm going through, to change me. The second person was a grandmother who was concerned for her children and grandchildren, but didn't feel like she could really do anything to help, so she asked if we could pray together. I was like, yeah. And when she arrived, she says, I've come to pray because I realize all I can do is bring it to Jesus. Can we just bring it to Jesus? See, both of them were facing difficulty, but also understood their situation's vital truth. And not just theirs, but mine as well, and yours too. 
It's going to take something outside of us to change our gloomy and distressing circumstances. For the light to dawn on the deepest, darkest recesses of our lives, we're going to have to bring it to Jesus. Danny, I appreciate, I don't know where you're sitting, but I appreciate you so much when you were inviting us earlier in the service to just bring whatever we needed to to Jesus and that his favorite thing to do is forgive. His favorite thing to do is to forgive, to heal, to restore, to shine, oh, there you are, to shine light in dark places. We need to bring it to Jesus our whole lives. He is the light of the world. He is the light of God given for us so that we can rejoice. In Matthew 5, Jesus, he'll say to his followers, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden, neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand. And it gives light to everyone in the house. So not only is Jesus the light, but when you and I follow him, we too become the light. Because we become like him. And the more we spend time with him, and the more we, we can begin to illuminate the world around us, because we will be like him bringing his kingdom light into dark places where Jesus is needed most. And so we need to spend time in the light of his presence, rejoicing in the light of Jesus. So spending time alone with Jesus, praying and reading the scriptures. Or we spend time with Jesus here with the rest of his family, praising him together, serving together. Or we need to spend time with family and friends Talking and laughing, celebrating, throwing those parties like a harvest festival and rejoicing over all the good things that God has done for us. And then we need to go and let our light shine. Notice what Jesus says. He does not say that you are soldiers in God's army taking ground for the kingdom by force. He doesn't say we fight. He says we're light. All you've got to do is make sure that you don't cover it up and get out there and shine. Remember Gideon's army, right? Armed with torches in their hands. All they did was hold them up high. It was God who won the victory. And so also we need to hold the light of Christ high so that others can see his light shining through us. And then it will be him who will win the victory. And then together with those that Jesus takes captive, like he took us captive, rescuing us out of darkness, together we will be able to rejoice in the light of God. Let's stand and pray together and the worship team can come up. Oh, Father, you are so good to us and we love you so much. We thank you so much that you sent your light into the world in Jesus. He is the light unto our path. We just pray, Father, that you would help us to trust in you. Help us to lay down whatever it is uh, that is hindering us from trusting you, whether it's swords or shields or our own plans or, or whatever. Help us to walk in your light, 
Give us ears to hear your voice that you are calling us. Thank you that you love us and that you never leave or forsake us. But you are the God who walks with us through the valley of the shadow of death. And you lead us on to green pastures. We love